It is really good to see some of you back that we hadn't seen in a long time. It has been lonely. Um, it's just not the same without you friends here. Um, I've had both of my shots, so if you hear Bill Gates' voice come out of me or something weird, you know, let me know. Um, I don't, don't understand. I, I do want to say, and, and I'll say this again, our elders, especially and deacons, have, have done unbelievable work in this transition and, and pastoral search. You have no idea the number of hours they have spent, the prayers they have prayed, and the excruciating pain they have struggled with. It's a hard thing. It is truly a hard burden um, to try to do it well and, and um, pray for them. Um, I'm a little uncomfortable that they're going to have a party for me, but they said, you know, Andy, it's been such a bad year. That gives us something to celebrate. You're leaving. And <laughs> I, I, I said, oh, I feel better now, um, you know, that... Uh, no, the elders, are, they really are working hard. It is, it is a, and, and my prayer is that, that we as a congregation see God's hand in it and step back and say, Lord, how will you use this for the future? Um, and that this will catapult grace forward in a really special way of obedience to him. We are continuing today in our sermon series on how do you become more like Jesus and looking to the book of Acts, excuse me, Luke. Um, he also wrote Acts, but look into the book of Luke and looking at characteristics of Christ that we should emulate. And um, I want to start with Luke chapter 22, if you want to turn there in your Bible. Um, this is something that's obvious that I've preached on many times. It's something I believe very strongly about, but it's not the subject of the sermon. It's just setting the sermon up. Luke chapter 22, beginning with verse 24. A dispute arose among them, the disciples, as to which one of them was to be considered greatest. Well, that's, that's always important that you establish that. When you're with the Son of God, it makes sense that you would worry who was greatest, right? And Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors, because all they're doing is really for you, Right? We ever heard a leader say that? I'm just doing it for you. Uh, my experience is when someone tells me, I, this is really for your good, you better get a little worried. But that's, that's what he's saying the leaders did at that point. They call themselves benefactors. But you're not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you shall be like your youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? It is not is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. One of the themes that you'll see in these passages is that Jesus loved to use meals to illustrate life principles. And here in the context of the meal with the, the apostles, he said, now normally you would think that the one who's paying for the meal, whom everyone else is serving, is the more important one. But have you noticed that I'm the one who's serving here, guys? And, and it makes that point that Jesus wants us to know that in his kingdom, in his priorities, service is the key to greatness. And we hear a lot about that. We, we, 
Uh, it's a part of our, our human language. Uh, we were joking between services about uh, civil service being the idea our leaders are in civil service, although sometimes lately it hadn't been very civil or very much service oriented. But that's the intent, right? Uh, a number of years ago uh, in the 60s or maybe even 50s, a guy named Simon Greenleaf wrote a pivotal book in leadership studies called Servant Leadership, and everyone acted like no one had ever thought of the idea. But it, it really is Jesus' teaching, right? All along, he established that greatness comes through serving. And we all know that intuitively. And that was Jesus' example. Even though the apostles are there uh, sitting around the table, he's the one that is serving them. But can we just talk, just us? Isn't it true that oftentimes people that are serving and busy serving can end up in a really bad place? I mean, this has been a bad year. Of all years to pick to leave, I picked a great one, didn't I? You know, you can blame COVID on me. You can blame so many things on me. I should have left before this started or waited till it's, yeah, I mean, this is a terrible year. We've had the pandemic. We've had incredible issues related to our historical issues with race. We've had, as a church, we've struggled through some incredibly difficult things. It's been an unbelievably difficult year. And then the cherry on top has been lately new announcements of Christian leaders who have absolutely destroyed their testimony. I mean, train wrecks. Train wrecks. Those kind of, of destructive behaviors that everyone who's cynical about our faith points to and says, see there, they're frauds, they're hypocrites. And I, I'm old and been around a long time, and i got to tell you, I'm, I've got a long list of folks like this, some of whom you know, some of whom I knew, some of whom were well-known and some of whom aren't that well-known. But the reality is there are a lot of Christian leaders that end up in bad places, even though they worked hard and served hard and everyone around them thought they were doing the right thing. And you think, how does that happen? How do significant Christian leaders, whether vocational leaders or lay leaders, leaders in the home, how does it happen that we can end up in such a bad place? And I'm going to argue today that service is good, but it's not enough. Service is good, but it's not enough. Because in this whole series, we're illustrating issues with the life of Christ. Let me read to you from John chapter 14. John 14, Jesus said in verse 28, You heard me say I'm going away and I'm coming back to you. If you love me, you would be glad that I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And I've told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. And I will not say much more to you, for the Prince of the world is coming and he has no hold over me. In other words, Jesus is announcing his, his coming death, resurrection, and ascension, that I'm going to leave you. Then he says, but he who comes, but he comes, excuse me, he has no hold over me, but he comes so that the world may learn, listen to this, that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Jesus introduces 
the issue of motivation. What's your motivation? What causes you to do what you do? We often get so caught up in the performance of whether we're doing the right things that one day we awaken and we're doing them for all the wrong reasons and that begins a decline that ends in a complete train wreck. What was Jesus' motivation? The very Son of God, he did what he did in order to express his love and, and submission to the Father. His, his ultimate, his ultimate motivation in all that he did was to please the Father. And does Jesus need to say that to us? No, but he, he needs us to see that that motivation underneath is so important. And so fundamentally, one of the questions we have to ask is not just am I doing the right things, but what's my reason for doing them? Okay, let's illustrate that in, in Luke chapter 14. In Luke chapter 14. Jesus teaches this truth by drawing a comparison with the Pharisees. Now, if, if, if all you know about the Pharisees is what you read about them in the New Testament, you know they're not good guys, right? The Pharisees were, they were constantly at Jesus' throat. They were in, constantly in opposition to him. But one of the things we forget is they started with the best of motives. We believe, as best as we can tell, that they started during the captivity. After the nation of Israel was finally taken into captivity into Babylon, the Pharisaic party was concerned that without having the temple, without having the scrolls of Scripture necessarily in the way that they did, they would forget the truth of God's Word. And the Pharisees rose up among the people to ensure that the nation of Israel knew and understood and obeyed the law of God. Fundamentally, a great purpose, an incredible purpose. And as you read about it in the New Testament, what you see is they never appear to leave that job. They are always serving the law. They are always trying, at least on the surface, to make sure that the people of Israel are obedient to the law. But something broke, didn't it? Something along the way got distorted, didn't it? Let's look at what happens in Luke 14. One Sabbath when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. By the way, notice that even though the Pharisees were out to murder Jesus, he continued to have fellowship with them. There is a natural inclination for us as Christians to withdraw from people when we believe that they're not on our side. But Jesus is an illustration of someone who continually gave even the Pharisees the opportunity to know about him. It's amazing, his courage. And the, the, he, was being, he knew he was being carefully watched. Verse 2, there in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. A dropsy is descriptive of a condition where someone retains large amounts of body fluid. It can be a problem of kidneys. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's evidence of a greater issue. But he, it would have been physically visible to see that his, he was distended, he was swollen, and so that Jesus would recognize that he had this condition. Um, most scholars believe that the Pharisee brought him in as a test for Jesus, that he was invited because it was the Sabbath and Jesus was there and their hope was that Jesus would 
quote-unquote break the Sabbath, thereby ensuring that they'd have another reason to condemn him. Verse 3, Jesus asked the Pharisee and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Jesus knew what he was there for, knew that they wanted to trap him, and they remained silent, which is what they do when they know they can't answer him. So taking hold of the man, he healed him, and he sent him away. And he asked them, if any one of you has a son or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull him out? They had nothing to say. See, the law allowed for rescuing livestock on the Sabbath. But see, it really wasn't about the Sabbath law anymore. What this paragraph illustrates is the Pharisees have left their original purpose. They still appear to be serving the same law that they were always serving, but somewhere along, some other motivation had taken hold. And because of that, They no longer were positive influence on the people, but instead had become a horribly negative influence on the people. And Jesus, because of who he is, loves to expose their hypocrisy. They didn't care about the Sabbath. They had all kinds of ways to get around it, to accomplish what they wanted to accomplish. What they cared about was their stature and their standing, their power. Verse 7. Well, let me first prove to you my point. Luke chapter 11, verse 43. Jesus says, Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Luke 20, verse 45. While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in synagogues and places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses for a show, make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. What does Jesus say their motivation is? Themselves. They serve themselves. They no longer serve the law. They serve themselves. They they no longer serve the Lord. They serve themselves. They no longer serve the community, especially even the helpless. They serve themselves. Uh, Their affections, their loves demonstrate what really matters to them, and it's no longer what their original purpose was. Now, they're, they're horribly busy. You can't read the Gospels and not realize just how busy the Pharisees were. They they were always at it. But their motivation had changed. And because their motivation had changed, what had originally been a very positive thing for the nation of Israel had become something that tore Israel away from her God. Can I submit to you that we can fall into the same trap? We can get real busy serving and, and over time lose our love for what matters and that service steals our heart away and then one day we wake up and we're a problem. How do we know that's happened? I'll tell you one, a couple of ways. One is if we compare to other people. If we say, well, I'm sure working harder than you are. 
you, you need to pick up your game here because I look at all I'm doing. For heaven's sakes, I deserve, oh, you deserve. That's the second one. When we start looking for attention for what we do, then it's no longer, servants don't get attention, do they? You know, what's, what's, what's a great waiter at a restaurant? One that does a great job and you hardly even notice. Because a really good servant doesn't draw attention to themselves. We've all been to that restaurant where the servant, the restaurant waiter thinks you're there to see them. You know that one? We don't, we don't normally enjoy them near as much, right? Because we don't come to see them. But that's the role. The role of a servant is not to draw attention to themselves. The law, role of a great servant is to serve. And, and when, when we start comparing ourselves to others, when we start complaining that we're not getting attention, when we start getting embittered, then we know that our motivation has changed. And somewhere along the way, the Pharisees have done just that. They're still serving. They're still working hard. But something in their hearts has gotten broken. And rather than doing the right thing for the right reasons, first they do it for the wrong reasons, and then they ultimately end up doing the wrong thing. I've seen this in ministry, pastors, working hard, caring deeply, and then allowing those wrong motivations creep in, and then one day they're frustrated because they don't feel they've gotten the attention they deserve. They're frustrated because they feel they're keeping score of everybody else. They're frustrated because, well, you can fill in the gaps, right? We do it in our marriages. We keep score in our marriages. Um, uh, women are, men are from Mars, women are from Venus. Don't read the book. It's not a very good book, quite frankly. It's, it's, but it has one great thing. In that. It says that in marriages, we keep score differently. So the, the illustration they use is man works 50 hours a week to bring home the paycheck to pay for all the family's needs. He gets one point. She fixes his favorite dessert. She gets one point. We keep score differently, right? I mean, the, that's a reality that we look at our contribution and always multiply it greater than others and then we diminish the contribution of others. Um, uh, Service is effective when we do it out of love. Jesus did it out of love for the Father, and we're called to do it out of love for the Father and, and recognition of what Jesus has done. Verse 7, when he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told his parable, when someone invites you to a wedding feast, don't take the place of honor for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host invited both of you and will come and say to you, give this man your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you're invited, take the lowest place so that when the host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. And then you will be honored in the presence of all your fellow guests. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exhausted. I think it's very interesting in the two quotes I read to you about the Pharisees in Luke 11 and Luke 20, in both cases he mentions they love the most important seats. It was, it was one of those easy definers of what's in your heart. 
if you've been around me long, you know that in a previous life, I worked for Dallas Seminary, and in that life, one of the many things I did was the Founders Banquet. Back in the day, the Founders Banquet had originated as a celebration of the Founders' birthday, and they'd have it in a church until everybody got food poisoning at one of the churches, and then they felt led to move to a banquet uh, hall. And for years, I did the banquets, and we were the biggest banquet in the city of Dallas. So we, on a normal year, we'd feed 3,000 to 3,500 people in three nights, and then in the biggest year, we fed 10,000 people in seven banquets in Dallas and Houston. I mean, we were a big deal. And um, Julie and I would sit up all night and assign all of those tickets, their seats, several nights in a row. And we learned something. Where you sit really matters. It's interesting. And I've got to, this isn't judging other people. To this day, if I go to a banquet, and I try desperately to avoid them generally, but if I, you know, seven banquets in one week, that's a lot of rice pilaf. I don't care what anyone says. But, you know, the, which I called pile of rice. Um, never impressed the chef, but I did it anyway. Kind of a dad joke. Um, when I go into a banquet hall, what's your first question? Where's my table? Isn't it interesting that you ask that? It's not like any of the seats are bad. Even if you're in the very back corner, you can see and hear just fine. Why do we do that? Because something in us is desperately concerned about whether we're getting recognition or not. And, and we would assign those seats, and it was just fascinating to watch how people responded to where their seat was. Just fascinating. The worst experience I had with it was not at Dallas Seminary. It was the Dallas Christian Leadership Prayer Breakfast. After I left the seminary, because I was known for banquets, I got involved in the Dallas Christian Leadership Prayer Breakfast for a number of years. And, and again, would, I had a, a helper, and they would assign all the tables. And, and I'll never forget it. One year, we had the room full. There were a couple of thousand people. And, and we'd, I had made sure everything was right and all the table numbers. And I looked up. And the businessmen who ran the prayer breakfast were moving tables. And I thought, this is not good. Five minutes before breakfast is supposed to start. What had happened, a very highly visible Christian business leader in the city of Dallas had walked in and discovered that their table was not appropriate for their standing and through such a fit that they parted the waters and added a table dead center in the room just to appease them so we could. I don't think they were there to pray. I just don't. You know what I'm saying? I just don't think they were there to pray. Jesus in his incredible wisdom knows that something as simple as the seat we're assigned to can reflect what's important to us. Something as simple as the seat we're assigned to can reflect what's important to us. And he said, guys, practical wisdom. Actually, he's referring, I believe, to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 25, verse 6. Don't exalt yourself in the king's presence and don't claim a place among great men. It's better for him to say, come up here, than for him to humiliate you before noblemen. In other words, Jesus, Jesus is using the wisdom of Scripture, uh, the book of Proverbs, and saying, guys, don't, don't go up the front of the table. All you're going to do is get embarrassed. Now, and on one level, that's the wisdom of Proverbs, right? Don't put yourself in a place to be demoted. 
So I've made a habit when I go to a banquet to try to take the least significant seat. What I've never had happen yet is anyone say, no, no, come up to the front. <laughs> they always say, you're in a good place. I like that. Um, <laughs> but isn't Jesus saying something more than the practical? He's looking at the Pharisees who are always worried about whether they get the attention they want. He compares them to himself and says, I'm the one that serves. And he says, guys, it's not about us. It's not here. We're not here to serve ourselves. Can I submit to you that when leaders crater, more often than certainly Christian leaders, more often than not, I think they come into it with the best of intentions. And they get busy and they start working hard. But over, the, over time, their motivation changes, and their affections change, and there's grumbling and comparison. And then one day they wake up, and their life is a train wreck. Bill Lawrence is here. Bill was my pre preaching professor. Don't blame him. It's not his fault. He only had me one semester. Um, taught a number of years at Dallas Seminary, and in his quote-unquote retirement, started a ministry called Leader Found for, Shoot. LFI, Leader Formation International. Bill's been, written the best stuff I know on this subject. I've called him out in all three ver uh, services, not just today, but yesterday when I did a really bad job on this sermon, so no one will read your book, but hopefully it's better today. <laughs> um, Bill's done brilliant work at showing how easy it is for a leader to lose control of their heart and do it for the wrong motivations and end up in a train wreck. See, the reality is in church work. We can get all caught up in serving. We can be the one that's there every time the door opens. We can be the one that moves the tables or cleans up, you know, coffee that's spilt. We can be the one that shows up when everyone needs it. But if, if that heart issue is neglected, if we lose our affections for what matter, if it starts becoming about us rather than about the Lord, we have set ourselves up for an absolute train wreck. And that's what Jesus is saying. Um, because Jesus says, if you exalt yourself, you're going to be humbled. And if you humble yourself, you'll be exalted. Obviously, he's looking for the future time. In fact, look at verses 12 through 14. Then the, Jesus said to the host, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, he just can't get away from this table. Don't invite your friends or your brothers or relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do that, they may invite you back and you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed. They can't repay you but you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. What does that have to do with it? You don't serve for yourself. You don't give for yourself. In fact, ideally, you give to people that can't give back, who need it most. And you trust 
that the God who knows and sees all and who is perfectly just and righteous will see and recognize what you've done. It's incredibly tempting to no matter how noble what you're doing is, to twist it to make it about ourselves, isn't it? It's just, it's just who we are. It's so easy to turn service of others into weirdly service of ourselves, advancement of ourselves, meeting our needs. Preachers are famous for it. You know, we can fall into people-pleasing because it makes us feel good to please people and have them say nice things. You know, um, back when churches only had one door out is one way to keep you in. Um, uh, you, you, would, you would all have to leave and the preacher would stand there and you'd have to shake his hand. My old professor, uh, Howard Hendricks, used to call that the elevation of the worm ceremony because they would go out and shake the preacher's hand and say, nice job, preacher, you know. They didn't mean it, but, you know, it, it elevated the worm. And, 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 and it's easy to fall into those compliments, you know. Uh, even, uh, we can do it for all kinds of reasons besides serving our Lord. But what you see in Scripture and what you see in history is when we lose the right motivation, when we do it for the wrong reasons, we set ourselves up for failure. So it's not just how I look or what I'm doing. It's why I'm doing it and whom I'm serving. I've lived a long time in the Christian world, and let me tell you, there's a whole lot that goes on that appears to be good, but is really self-serving. And there are a whole lot of people that no one ever sees who are going to get the greatest awards. I, I told the story in the first service, and, and our elder chairman mocked me, so I have to tell it again. Um, this is not necessarily the way it's going to happen, okay? This is, this is just my image. This is not a biblical picture, but I've always had this picture because Jesus says, some of you will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, and I'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. In other words, Jesus says in Scripture that when we come to seem, we'll be surprised who's celebrated and who's not. And I've just always had this visual image of us lining up in the throne room of heaven and, and some of the big-name preachers and big-name Christian leaders, you know, come up with their resumes and their manila folders, you know, can't wait for Jesus to slap them on the back and give them a big mansion. And he's going to say, yeah, you, your table is in the next room with a projector. You know what I'm saying? And there are going to be quiet and humble servants that nobody knows who never draw attention to themselves and who serve those who can't do anything back for them. And they're going to step in front of Jesus and he's going to lead applause because they serve the way he serves. They love the way he loves. And in heaven, they're going to get the big houses. Which do we want to be? Pray with me. Father, we confess that we can so easily make our service for you really service of us. 
we can make it a function of our needs, our frailties, our pride, and not a function of our love for you. Father, sharpen our focus so that we keep our eyes on you. Search our hearts so that our affections are devoted to you. Make us a people that serve for the right reasons so that you can use our work to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.